Today we're in Psalm 105, and raise your hand if that's your favorite psalm. Hmm. It's not my favorite either, <laughs> but I think it has something to say to us, something important. Asher, I have a job for you. This is my grandson, six years old. He's been counting yellow lights since they got here on Thursday. He told me yesterday that he'd seen 27 yellow traffic lights. I want you to count how many times I say the word remember during this sermon, okay? You can do that? <laughs> because that's what's the, one of the important things of this psalm is remembering Remembering the Lord, remembering what he's done. One of the things I'm finding more and more as I age is about the deterioration of memory. Having reached the age of 71 a few weeks ago, the rate of slippage seems to be accelerating. As many here who are of my generation can testify, it's mostly about the short-term memory. Ask me what I had for breakfast, for example, and I may or may not be able to tell you. Ask me about something that happened 50 years ago, probably a better chance. But you have to take that in stride. Most often, stuff like this is an inconvenience at worst. As nice as it would be to have the memory, the mind you had when you were younger, at least you aren't alone in the struggle. Not every lapse is evidence of serious issues. As easy as it would be to harbor that suspicion. And generally, we're able to remember the more important stuff, like the, conse um, the consequences of forgetting are minor at worst. Now, having said that, there are things that we dare not forget. For example, I need to remember to take my cholesterol medication every day. I need to remember to put my mask on when it's required, and it may be required sooner than later. We don't know. I had better remember important birthdays and anniversaries, like my own, for example. <laughs> Even more important, I need to remember the Lord, that I belong to him because he paid the price of my ransom, that he's been faithful to keep me from stumbling as we are assured in June, Jude verse 25, that he has made many and precious promises and that he will always keep those promises, that he will never leave me nor forsake me. And we could go on for a good long time. And as we remember these things, we are able to help each other along toward glory. That's so much of what the church is all about, after all. It's been said that sanctification is a community project. We need each other in the journey. <clears throat> God's people in the Old Testament were no less in need of this kind of help. And God provided that help, along with cautionary words about the consequences of forgetting. For example, consider this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which, it, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them 
And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that you fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget, the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. All of that is based on remembering our God, remembering his acts, as Pastor Jonathan read in the first several verses of Psalm 105. So God's people were no less in need of that kind of help, and God provided it along the way, as we've just read. Now there's another example, there's multiple, multiple examples in the Old Testament. Take a look at Deuteronomy 32 on your own time. We don't have time to read it today, but it's Moses' parting words to the people in the form of a song that he taught so that the nation wouldn't forget Yahweh. We know that songs are great ways to teach something that you want somebody to remember, right? They're like, they're mnemonic devices. Mnemonic devices. Memory keys. Remember when you were little? A lot of you are my age or around that. Remember George Eliot's old grandfather wrote a pig home yesterday? Raise your hand if you remember that one. No? What? That was how you remembered how to spell geography. Wow. You people have some gaps in your education. <laughs> but we can't deal with that now. A mnemonic device is simply a way of helping you to remember. Psalm 105 we have here, according to the ESV Study Bible, a hymn celebrating God's faithful dealings with his people, particularly reflecting on episodes from the Pentateuch in which the people interacted with powerful foreigners who might have harmed them, Abimelech, Potiphar, and Pharaoh. The tone of Psalm 105 is one of gratitude. Each member of the singing congregation should recognize that he is an heir and a beneficiary of all these great deeds that God has done so that each one will embrace his calling to live as a member of God's holy people. In a sense, the, this, this psalm, Psalm 105, is the account, at least one version of it, of how God's people became a nation and how the nation came into being. 
It occurs to me that a psalm, this, a psalm is like this, is analogous to an individual Christian knowing and telling his or her own story of how they came to know Jesus. Psalm breaks down into four sections. And here's a, another mnemonic device, if you will. Verses 1 through 6 are an exhortation to remember and tell everyone about the wondrous works of the Lord. Verses 7 through 11 are a reminder that he is a covenant-keeping God. Verses 12 through 22, a recitation of God's protectedness over and provision for his people. And verses 23 to 48, a rehearsal of God's deliverance from Egypt in the sense of a rehearsal, in the sense of repeating or relating something. So did you catch that we had four R's there? Good, good. We're, we're, getting, we're getting there. Remember, reminder, recitation, and rehearsal. So, first section, one through six. In order to tell others about the wondrous works of the Lord, it goes without saying that we need to remember them. And from the Deuteronomy passage we just read, it's clear that forgetting isn't the benign, innocuous thing we might think it is. Think about, for those of you who have children, you've given your child a chore, and when you ask them if the chore was done, they say, I forgot, as if that somehow makes everything okay. You can choose to see that as culpable and blameworthy if you, if you want to, and if your child has a history of forgetting things like that, you may be more inclined. But this is one reason why the Old Testament people of God sang so much. Think about it. They didn't all have a copy of the scriptures in their possession. They had to rely on oral transmission, the retelling of their story, often in song. So this telling is what is remembered in one of the ways God's people were to fulfill the promise of Abraham in Genesis 12, that he, Abraham, would be our source of blessing to all the families of the earth. They needed to tell each other, and indeed, they needed to tell others, other nations, other people groups. They kind of didn't do that very much. In our context, do we have a way of preserving our shared story. Do many of us know much of anything about how this church came into being, humanly speaking? I fear that the number of us who have any meaningful connection to those early days is dwindling, and that would be a real loss if we were to lose that story. Can't get into that right now, but um, I'm sure that it's written down somewhere. And it needs to be, and it needs to be remembered. On the heels of the exhortation to people to remember, the psalmist reminds us, second R, in the following section, that God remembers his covenant forever, for a thousand generations. Let's, let's read, since the first six were already read, let's read the um, next four verses, five verses of Psalm 105. Beginning in verse 7, 
He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So what started with Abraham continues to Isaac and Jacob and indeed to a thousand generations, which I take as the Bible's way of saying it's forever. Along with this is a promise of land, the land of Canaan. Now, isn't it interesting that God remembers his covenant? But according to Jeremiah 31, 34, as part of the new covenant, he, quote, will remember our sins no more. And Psalm 103, 14 tells us he remembers that we are dust. This is what this covenant-keeping God of ours does. He takes pity on his people. He is described multiple times in Scripture as slow to anger and full of loving kindness. This means he is not arbitrary or capricious in his judgments. He never unjustifiably punishes, but he often forbears, showing patience to sinners All of us can, if we are honest, give testimony to the fact that the Lord has treated us far better than we deserve. Remember, he is absolutely holy and would be justified in wiping us out anytime we sin. But that is not how he chooses to act. Psalm 103 again. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. To which I can only say, what a God. What a God. He chooses not to remember. The following section, third section, verses 12 through 22, comprise a recitation of the acts of the Lord, first in protecting Abraham and his family, while they journeyed in the land of Canaan among pagan tribes who could easily have done away with them had not God miraculously intervened. And I'll leave it to you to read that account on your own. It is also by reference about, about God preserving the promised line of Abraham when Abraham himself was willing to give Sarah to another more powerful man. Find that one in Genesis 20. <clears throat> Then we have the condensed version of how the children of Israel wound up in Egypt, which is an amazing story given in the final 14 chapters of Genesis. Obviously, we won't read all that, but I want to read a few verses back in Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16. When he, he, being God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord retested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his people and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom." 
You'll remember that Joseph was hated by his brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt. From there, he was falsely imprisoned and confined for some 13 years in a dungeon until God orchestrated his release. And one of the all-time great reversals in Scripture, he winds up as second only to Pharaoh in the whole land. But this is more than just a great story. It is the account account of God sending Joseph to Egypt for a specific purpose. In Joseph's own words to his brothers in Genesis 50-20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That many, to bring it, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And his eloquent proof that, as others have pointed out, God is always up to far more than we know or see. On one level, the story of Joseph is about sibling rivalry and the wicked hearts of Joseph's envious brothers, so wicked that they were willing to kill him or at least send him hundreds of miles away where they never expected to see him again. But from God's perspective, it's about the divine orchestration of people and events for a greater purpose. We aren't given any details of how or even whether Joseph questioned God while in that Egyptian dungeon for those years. But we do know that he was given the ability to forgive those brothers in the knowledge that God had reasons for it all. In Joseph's case, he knew he knew that much during his lifetime. We may or may not be given the same advantage, but we can and must trust our Heavenly Father to do what He knows is best for us and for those around us. Fourth section, from here the psalmist transitions to a rehearsal of the Lord's deliverance of His chosen people from Egypt the greatest superpower of that day. This is truly a miraculous episode. Even if you want to manipulate the facts, the story, to explain the plagues as natural disasters. The narrative records eight of the ten plagues, number five and number six are left out, we don't know why, which ultimately convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. To say that it was unlikely for Pharaoh to release all that free slave labor is a great understatement. Indeed, it was the realization of that loss that prompted Pharaoh to send his army after the Israelites and what directly led to the annihilation of the Egyptian military in the waters of the Red Sea. The military threat having been dealt with, the psalmist moves on to how God provided for the people of Israel for by this time, about two, more than two million strong for their flight. And I'm going to read a couple of verses for you back in Psalm 105. Did you get my water? Under the chair. Thank you. Thought I might not need this. Psalm 105. <clears throat> Verse 37. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail. 
and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought, out, he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might observe his statutes and keep his statutes and observe his laws. What a God indeed. You know, if, if you can imagine three, per, three people, one American, one British, one Jewish, sitting, talking together about how their nations came into being. The American would talk about the Jamestown Settlement, the Pilgrims, Declaration of Independence, the War for Independence, those key events that we are aware of. The, the Brit might talk about the Magna Carta, uh, William the Con Conqueror, some of those things that happened upwards of a thousand years ago uh, as key events. The Jewish person might talk about the kinds of things that we have right here in Psalm 105. This is what God did. This is what, how God brought us into existence. They ran down, went down to Egypt as a group of 70 people and were enslaved almost immediately. 400 years later, they came out as a nation stronger than the Egyptians, two, maybe two and a half million strong. And the, the people of Israel were commanded to remember that. You go into any number of psalms. I just read Psalm 78 this morning. Um, read that psalm. It talks about different perspectives, different spins on how God did all of that. This, this whole psalm is historical, meaning it's there to record the acts of God in history, to show his covenant-keeping nature and remind us of that aspect of his character. And this is by no means an isolated example. There's a random example from Exodus 12. Just a couple of verses here. Exodus 12, verse 24. This print's getting smaller. <laughs> you shall observe this rite, referring to the Passover meal, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. We could go on to many other texts which demonstrate the importance, indeed, the necessity of remembering the works of the Lord. It would seem that in God's opinion, remembering is essential and forgetting is a pretty big deal. So we have the theme of remembrance. Secondly, we have the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> the fundamental question here is whether God has the right 
to do what he chooses with his universe. This is more difficult than we might think, for our answer is often reflective of a limited hypothetical perspective. Think about the difficult times you've been through. How easy is it to implicitly accuse God of being unfair when things don't work out the way we wanted them to? And our circumstances are generally, comparatively good. For a moment, give some thought to what the believers in Afghanistan or Haiti, for example, are going through right now. Does God have the same rights with them? Do I, do we really believe the judge of all the earth will do what is just, to paraphrase Abraham's words in Genesis 18. Just let that hang there for a moment. Do we really believe that God is the sovereign ruler, that he owns everything, including us, and that he has the right to do as he chooses with us, with our circumstances? Easy enough as we sit here in air-conditioned comfort on a Sunday morning in a place where we really don't have any need to fear that somebody's going to come after us. But if you're a Christian in Afghanistan, if you're a pastor in Afghanistan, the Taliban are going door to door, we've been told by reliable sources, hunting down, doing away with people who are loyal to Christ. And there are other places in the world where that's happening. It's not just Afghanistan. And there are other places in the world where there are natural disasters. Um, But the ones in the headlines right now are Afghanistan and Haiti. Is God sovereign? Does he have the right? Can we trust him with that? The creators of, this is uh, third, third observation, the creators of the Bible Project a resource you would do well to become familiar with if you aren't already, are always describing the Bible as one story that leads to Jesus. So what we have here in Psalm 105 is more than just an interesting story. It's a story about the greater narrative that leads to Jesus. Think about it. In the account of Joseph, we have someone who is innocent, sent to Egypt as part of God's plan to make a way to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Sounds like this was what was happening in the last days of Jesus' life. Well, or in Jesus' life generally. Jesus went to Egypt as a child, came back to Israel, and was the one who made the way to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And in one of the last commands Jesus gave to his disciples, he told them to celebrate what we now know as the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. He knows how forgetful we are and so has accommodated that aspect of who we are. That is precisely precisely why, why we do this weekly, why we remember the Lord in the bread and the cup every week. We are a forgetful people. 